Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Tonight I want to talk about happiness. I want to talk about it in terms of what we're doing here as uh, this practice as a a path of happiness. Many of you um, know that I, I teach that course, Awakening Joy. It's a 10-month course, and I'll see if I can condense it into 45 minutes, 15 minutes. Mm, But I I really want to make it uh, relevant to what we're doing here, because um, sometimes we can forget that what we're doing is cultivating true happiness. <clears throat> when, I, when I got into the Dharma, it was like coming home. You know that feeling. I'm sure everybody here has their own experience of it. Wow, I finally found something that aligns me with with the truth and can be a way through my confusion. When I first heard the teachings, I, and I came to the teachings um, out of a lot of suffering, as probably many people here have. And the first time I heard it, you know, when I first heard Joseph Goldstein in 1974, and he was saying it's possible to not be run by your neurotic thought patterns. I never, that had never occurred to me as a, an idea before to not be run by my thoughts. And he was saying it's possible. And I, there was something in the way he said it that made me believe him. So I just really went for it as you're going for it here. And I had what, is sometimes called um, a long honeymoon period. You know that honeymoon period where it's just like, yeah, I found the Dharma. I found what I'm looking for. Wow. Just clear sailing into the sunset. Uh, But, you know, honeymoons end. So, um, and my honeymoon ended after, it it was a while. But at some point in my practice, I became really serious, dead serious. And I lost my joy. And I went in that space for a while. And um, when I came out of it, when I came back to my, mm, my more natural way of being by that time of really appreciating life and feeling so blessed and uh, delighting in, in the good, uh, I wanted to take a look and see where I'd gone astray, where I'd gotten confused, and just what the Buddha did say about real happiness. So um, that started me on a, on a, a real um, quest to see, okay, how does this path lead to happiness? Because the Buddha said, he was called the happy one, and he said, go for the highest happiness. You know, he, he said, don't settle. Go for the real deal, and you'll get all the other happinesses along the way, which sounds pretty good, real happiness is along the way. And that's what his invitation was. But sometimes, you know, you hear there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, 
there's an end to suffering and there's a path leading to the end of suffering, sometimes that message gets distorted. And, uh, and it's understandable where sometimes people can um, get confused. This is a quote from Ajahn Sumedho. I quoted from last time. Remember the, the guy who gave the three-hour talk? He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. He said that's a good thing. There are a couple of teachings that also can easily be misinterpreted and distorted that lead one to think that joy and true well-being are somehow uh, not very Buddhist. Even though joy is, as you've heard, a factor of enlightenment, one of the four Brahma-viharas, and many, many kinds of expressions of happiness and well-being through the teachings. I think Guy in his earlier talk talked about, you know, PT and uh, rapture and bliss and sukha, pamoja, which is a kind of gladness, lots of different kinds, but sometimes it can get um, forgotten. Here's one teaching that can be misunderstood the teaching on uh, Samvega, which is a very profound, important understanding to come to in one's own practice at some point. This is the definition of Samvega from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. You hear that and you say, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? The important phrase in that teaching, realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived, which we can easily skip over and think, this is about getting out of here as quickly as we can. See you later. Good luck, folks. This is a very important understanding, realization to have. Oh, yeah, this is samsara just going around and around in an endless kind of a a cycle looking for happiness in all the wrong places. You know, the, the Buddha was moved to teach after he was enlightened. Probably many of you are familiar with this. At first, he didn't want to go teach. He said, you know, if I... If I teach, it's so deep and profound, and if people didn't get it, it would be a vexation to me. That's the words. But then he saw how everyone wants to be happy, but most everyone 
is going about doing the very things that lead to more suffering. And with his compassion, he spent then the next 45 years of his life sharing what he understood. But you have to see life as it's normally lived isn't going to do it. But we can easily miss that out and and miss out on that part and just say, let's get out of here. Another teaching, a very profound teaching that can be misinterpreted, the teaching on Nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which sometimes is translated, this is a, there's a beautiful article by Andy Olensky on Nibida. Sometimes it's translated in some of the older translations, one should have utter disgust for the aggregates internally and externally, or one should have utter revulsion for the aggregates. That means have disgust or revulsion for this body or the ones around. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. But a more accurate translation is one should cultivate disenchantment with regard to the aggregates. Not being enchanted by them, not being under their spell, breaking the spell of enchantment, not to reject, but just not to be enchanted by them. That makes a lot of sense. But again, it's easy to miss out on the, the subtler meaning and somehow think that you know, you shouldn't be letting yourself feel well-being and joy. So when I took a look at the teachings, I came upon a few things that really struck me as, as a clue and a path, not only in deeper practice, but in one's life on how to uh, cultivate more well-being and joy. And when I'm using the word joy, I'm using it for the whole range of states of well-being. You know, so it can be ease, peace, contentment, um, delight, happiness, wholeness, all of those. And that's our natural, that's our natural state. We're born into the world with this capacity. We don't have to, not only don't have to, we'll be finding ourselves in trouble if we look outside of ourselves to find it. It's right here in, in our being. You know, you, you come into this, you see babies. If they're fed, if they're diapered, given a little bit of love, what do they do? They squeal with delight. Like, wow, isn't life wonderful? And that's one reason we love being around babies because it reminds us of that place inside. Oh, yeah. Gee, remember when life was delighted, delighting me too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's actually um, also evident in an adult. You take an adult, put, put, a, put an adult uh, in a, an MRI machine, functional MRI machine, And if that person does not have stress, that's a big one right there, and is not in pain, their natural state that they exhibit hooked up to their brain is conscious, calm, contented, caring, creative. That's the natural state of who we are when the mind and the body are not stressed. So this is just accessing that place that's already inside of us, which we are doing here. So looking at the teachings, there are a few that I've found really inspiring that uh, I've been practicing and uh, like to share with others that we can perhaps keep in mind, you've heard them 
one way or another here before, but to just really focus on that aspect as a as a, a, a real priority in your practice brings energy and inspiration. So the the first teaching, which has been mentioned one uh, one way or another, is the teaching on wise effort. You've heard of, I forget who mentioned it, about wholesome states and unwholesome states. And wise effort technically has four aspects to it. Two have to do with unwholesome states. Akusala, states like greed, hatred, delusion, envy, um, jealousy, um, anger, um, you know those, right? Restlessness, all the hindrances, fear, all of those states are contracting and they're called unwholesome because they lead to suffering. They are suffering and they lead to more suffering. Then there's wholesome states, kusala, non-greed, generosity, non-hatred, kindness, non-delusion, clarity, plus a host of other wholesome states um, from uh, simplifying, letting go, compassion, the different Brahma-viharas, equanimity, patience, um, all of those. And those are expansive states and they're called wholesome because they lead to happiness. They are in themselves happy uh, states of well-being and they lead to more happiness when cultivated. So the teaching on wise effort is guard against unwholesome states that haven't arisen. If they're here, overcome them with skillful means, and we've been doing that, you know, most every talk, one way or another, is about how to deal with the, the challenges that come up from practice. You know, when you get caught in your story or when you get frightened or when you're, you know, you've lost your faith and there's doubt and all those things, how to work with that. So those are two aspects. And then the positive wise effort um, aspects are to cultivate wholesome states that haven't yet arisen, which we're doing in the mindfulness practice, we're doing in the Brahma-vihara practice, the uh, loving kindness, and now we're on compassion, and we'll go to sympathetic joy and equanimity. Cultivate wholesome states. And the fourth aspect is when a wholesome state is here to maintain and increase the wholesome state. He said, that's a good thing. To maintain and increase a wholesome state that has arisen. Now your mind might say, well, hold on a second. Isn't that attachment? What are we doing? You know, trying to get more. The paradox is, if you try to get more, if you want more, if you say, come on, bring it on, let's get more, you've just fallen into an unwholesome state. So it works against you. You can't be grasping at the wholesome state, but there are ways to cultivate it and to deepen it and to awaken it. So that's the first wise effort cultivating and increasing wholesome states. Second aspect, second teaching that I've been inspired by, the Buddha says, when you're in the middle of a wholesome state, there's a gladness that accompanies it. Isn't that so? Think of something that brings you joy right now. And when you think about it, while you're in the middle of it, it feels good. He says, there is a quality of gladness connected with the wholesome that is a very good thing to tune into. 
He says it gladdens the heart. It one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dharma, and it is an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. You know, you're having a bummer of a day and all of a sudden there's a little bit of kindness towards you. Somebody says, hi, how you doing? And in a moment, your bummer can just evaporate. One moment of wholesomeness or you do a random act of kindness and just kind of moves you and the contraction evaporates. And he says, notice that. In fact, in this one discourse, He gives the example of being generous. And he says, suppose you're in the middle of a generous act. He says, you should think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He says, that's a good thing. Thinking I'm generous, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth. Now, he's not saying, hey, I hope everybody sees how generous I am, you know, Aren't I wonderful for being so generous? That's identifying with the generosity. But if you feel how good it feels as generosity moves through you, oh, wow, I'm generous. Oh, this feels so good. Where you don't take ownership of it, but you're just tuning into that quality of well-being, there's an ease and openness that comes that we can actually take in. And this is also corroborated by neuroscience where you're taking in the good. Because as you tune into that quality of well-being, you deepen that connection to it. There's my, my friend Rick Hansen who's, who's a neuroscience guy around here wrote a really great book, Buddha's Brain. He, his formula is when you're feeling good, notice it and take it in for 30 seconds. If you do that six times in a day, I know that's three minutes, that's a lot, you know. <laughs> six times in a day for 30 seconds each time, over a two-week period, you will notice a dramatic increase in your well-being. One, because you are deepening that connection when you're really taking it in, in your neural pathways, but also that you start having your radar out for the good, and you'll be noticing it a lot more. We tend often to notice what's wrong. We have in our, in our brains this little cluster of neurons called the amygdala, which scans for what's wrong. It's our, f- our danger radar, which is good for us up to a point. But many people have overactive amygdalas, and so we're scanning the horizon for what could go wrong as... As Rick says, our brain, we're wired up, we're um, Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative ones. So it takes some practice to counteract that tendency of looking for what could go wrong. Six times a day, two weeks, you start looking for the good. And not just knowing you feel good, but feeling actually what it's like to feel good. Feeling it in your body, feeling it in your mind. Noticing and becoming really familiar with the texture of that. So that's the second principle. One, cultivating and increasing the wholesome. Two, being tuned into the gladness connected with the wholesome. And three, This other teaching that says, I think it maybe is mentioned here, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? 
if you frequently think and ponder upon how you're just a pathetic yogi or that everybody around is going to disappoint you or that life is you know, a drag, that's where you naturally land. Even though there's lots of other aspects to life, that's what you start to notice if you frequently think and ponder upon the goodness in things and in life or the amazing miracle of being alive in the first place or the fact that people underneath their confusion really want to love and be loved, that is where you'll start to land. Not to deny the other, but just to open up and hold all the sorrow and the pain in a bigger context. So, this also has a neuroscience corollary or uh, corresponding um, statement. Yeah, corollary. The uh, classical statement, neurons that fire together, wire together. That that's as you practice certain neural habits, ways of seeing things, that's where your brain naturally lands. And so you'll notice that. So as we're practicing here, you might just keep in mind, along with overcoming the unwholesome states or guarding against them, to cultivate wholesome states and be very present for them, not to miss them, is a very skillful thing to do. This is where real happiness at least lies and the conditions for the deeper kind of happiness that the Buddha said to go for. Because out of that mind that is bright and open and at ease and peace and all the factors of enlightenment that Guy spoke about, those are all wholesome states and conditions that allow for the deeper freedom. So while you're here, don't miss those wholesome states as they arise. And it's important to understand the conditioning that we're up against that even though we think we know better, we still get caught in the, the conditioning that has had a deep imprint in our consciousness. This is the message that we're given. And the Buddha talked about this 25, 2600 years ago, but now we're up against a very powerful mind manipulation. This is exhibit A, the gold shivers. Somebody gave me this ad a while ago. It's a two-page ad. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy. Right. This is the ad. The gold shivers. That electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Second page. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. (laughs) Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. Right? It's brilliant, right? You might not even care about jewelry. You read that and you say, I want some too, right? <laughs> the average American, by one study that was done about oh, 10 or 15 years ago, which is, I think, very conservative now as the world of hyperlink is more and more a reality. The average American gets, in that study, 3,000 messages every day. 
like this, saying, you think you're happy? You're not happy. You need this to be happy. And it's very potent conditioning. That's why, you know, Coca-Cola would spend two or three million dollars for 30 seconds of your time, say, watching the Super Bowl or however much it is now. It's probably conservative. Just so you can see for a moment somebody drinking Coke and feeling really good. You know, it's not like they're saying, oh, we're going we're gonna to turn on some people who've never heard about Coca-Cola before. You know? It's like they just need one moment of that connection in your brain. Mmm, that's good. <laughs> that's how it works. So you're, we're up against some pretty heavy-duty stuff here. But we know better, right? <clears throat> we know better. At least on one level, we do know better. We know better. The gold shivers aren't going to do it. Right? In fact, just uh, let me ask, just for the fun of it, think of what brings you joy an activity or some some experience of genuine joy. Let's just take a, a few from the crowd, one at, one at a time. What brings you joy? Anyone? Yeah. What's that? I couldn't hear. See? Birds. Seeing birds. Okay, beautiful. Just looking at Dogs, okay. Playing with your dog in the back. Family and friends, being with family and friends. Panthea. Uh, seeing the first buttercup of the spring, all the way in the back. Hiking in the Alps, being out in nature. Yeah, yes. Say again? A starry night. Again, the beauty of nature. Yeah, great. One, one last one. Was there another hand? Yeah. Playing with kids. Yeah. Did anybody say their jewelry? <laughs> All of those things are free. This is where real happiness lies. It's not in things. It's in us. So, given that, I want to share with you a few different wholesome states that you might keep in mind as you are practicing and the key is to see, not only to see them, but to let them sink in when you're in the middle of them. Mm, let's see. The first wholesome state that I find really helpful is a, um, an inspiring intention. Remember at the beginning of the, the retreat, I asked you, get in touch with your intention for being here. Now, intention can either be, it can be wholesome or un unwholesome. It's one of the, the, the um, mental factors that can be either way. But when it's colored with a wholesome quality, whether it's to develop your loving heart or to awaken or to um, practice compassion or anything like that. That is a very wholesome state. The power of it, and it all starts with intention, wise intention. Wise intention is wholesome. That's the, 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 the second in the Eightfold Path. After you s understand where real happiness lies, to really set yourself in the direction, in that direction, is very profound and powerful. And it can, in a moment, you can decide, even after a lifetime of habits, you can decide to go for genuine happiness. I want to read to you one, one example of this. You're probably all familiar with positive psychology which is this movement in the last oh, 15 years or so, instead of looking at pathology, I was a psych major, and you know, you read, I would read an abnormal psych book, and there's the medical student syndrome. Every chapter, oh yeah, that's me too. 
oh, that neurosis, oh, that pathology, that's me too, you know. That's what psychology focused on for many decades. In positive psychology, it's kind of like this, looking at health and well-being. It was started by a guy named Martin Seligman, who wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, and he was the chairman of the American Psychological Association. This is how it started. The moment took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm really not all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air, singing and dancing around. I yelled at her. She walked away, came back, and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. <laughs> yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done, and if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> This was for me an epiphany, nothing less. Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I had spent 50 years mostly enduring wet weather in my soul and the last 10 being a nimbus cloud in a household full of sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to my grumpiness, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. That was the beginning of the positive psychology movement. In one moment, we can resolve to change. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen all of a sudden magically. Okay, now I got it figured out. Yeah, once you do, then it takes work to keep on practicing. But once you get clear on your intention for true well-being, everything follows from that. As the Tibetan saying says, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. I share a story, and uh, I'll share it now because I want to maybe invite you to get in touch with this, of getting in touch with my deeper motivation, which in the teachings, one teaching around this is called clear comprehension of purpose. When you widen your intention, not just, oh, I want to be happy, but a deeper kind of happiness that's connected to something beyond yourself then it, it really fuels the whole, the whole deal. I was on my way to uh, this conference in uh, Dharamsala. I was so happy and, and, uh, and, and, and fortunate. I was invited to this conference with the Dalai Lama and a number of Western teachers. Right? And I happened to be stopping in Frankfurt, Germany. And I was speaking to a friend and uh, mentioned that I was stopping in, in Frankfurt. And she said, oh, you should see Mother Mira. And I said, oh, okay, well, maybe I will. Mother Mira, this wonderful, wise saint, Indian saint. And I'd heard about her and heard really good things about her. And um, I said, maybe you will. And she said, no, you should really see her. And then I heard that Mother Mira could grant you the boon of whatever you wish for, you'd get. And I thought, okay, I'll see her. I'll go see her. So I arranged to have two nights in Darshan with Mother Mira. Went there, first night there, it's like about 150 people or so in this room, all quiet. Mother Mira comes in after a while, all in silence, sits down, and one by one, you go up in front of her and you kind of put your head down and she does something that was explained to me by someone as kind of unraveling your karmic knots and your, I don't know how it works, but she did this thing, you know. And then you look into her eyes. It's like looking into eternity, right? And then after a while, she closes her eyes and that's the end of the darshan. And then the next person goes. There's like an on-deck circle so you can just go one at a time. So there I was, thinking, hmm, okay, if she can really 
grant me my heart's desire. What do I really want? God. I'd been thinking about it for a few days, but now it's kind of like coming up to the moment. I didn't race up. This is one of the times I didn't want to be first. I just wanted to like, check out the scene and take my time, figure it out. And I thought, well, do I want another thing, another gadget, another toy, another object? No, they all come and go. Do I want another experience? No, they come and go. What do I really, really want? If she could really give it to me. And I thought, and I thought, and then I got in touch with something that touched my heart. I went up, had the darshan. I don't know if she has magic powers, but in that moment of being so witnessed and so connected to my my true um, purpose, it, it was like it just got seared into my my heart, and I have, I say that before every talk when I'm working with somebody, this is what I want, the highest purpose. Now, I ask you, if you were in my position, what would you wish for? Just imagine, I'd like you to close your eyes for a moment, and imagine you're in front of somebody like that, or some wise being or maybe magical genie who could grant you your true heart's desire that would be fulfilling and deeply connecting. What would you wish for? Here it is. Just get in touch with how you can inspire yourself by something that's really meaningful to you. Your clear comprehension of purpose. And as you get in touch with it, feel the wholesomeness of it. How good that feels. Don't miss it. Not just the answer, but feeling the wholesomeness of it as well. There's something really pure inside of you that speaks to you like that. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. So this is one wholesome state, which I, I encourage you to stay in touch with from time to time, I think somebody else here mentioned it, the Dalai Lama saying, my sincere motivation is my protection. Keep coming back to your sincerity of motivation. It is one of the, the richest, actually, I think, the, the ongoing, deepest connection to your wholesome heart and your practice. That first statement, wise intention, puts you on the path towards real happiness. And then the next wholesome quality that, that we're practicing here every day, every moment as much as we can, is mindfulness. Mindfulness is itself a very wholesome state. In fact, of all the mental factors, the wholesome factors and the unwholesome factors, mindfulness has a unique property. It's the one factor that weakens all the unwholesome ones and strengthens all the wholesome ones. Isn't that amazing? As the Buddha says in the Satipatthana Sutta, there is one most direct way, one most wonderful way for overcoming sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, and pain and anxiety, and realize the highest happiness, and that is the cultivation of mindfulness. 
that's what we're doing here. Because in every moment, you're not gra- when you're not grasping at the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant or identifying with experience, you're cultivating non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Mindfulness can wake us up out of our confusion. You've seen that in a moment of mindfulness where you kind of wake up from your dream. Here's a, an excerpt that I, I love to read about uh, Sylvia Borstein about the power of mindfulness. This is at one of the joy courses. She says, uh, she was sharing in, in the class, one evening when she was staying in New York City, she'd arranged to meet a friend for a theater performance and decided to take a bus to get there. As the bus crept along through the heavy traffic, Sylvia started worrying, I'm going to be late. I'll miss the curtain. My friend will worry about what happened to me. I shouldn't have taken the bus. The subway would have been so much faster. Figuring she could walk faster than the bus was going, Sylvia got off. And of course, as I'm walking, the bus passes me by. And now I'm thinking I should have taken a cab. Sylvia's been meditating for years, but she's also, by her own admission, been fretting for years. So it was an easy reaction to fall into. Continuing her story, she describes running down Broadway in high heels with a cold wind whipping around her. And then, all of a sudden, I have the thought, what am I doing? Oh, I'm grumbling. That's a moment of mindfulness. Up until then, I was caught up in a habit-driven narrative, an editorial comment about what was happening. The moment at which the mind says, Sylvia, you're grumbling, The lens switches, and suddenly the truth of that moment is, I'm a 71-year-old woman running down Broadway in the middle of winter in high heels. That is far out. (laughs) That is an extremely fortunate thing to be able to do. It changed everything. I felt proud, and I actually hoped a lot of people saw me. That's how mindfulness works. In a moment, in the middle of seeing, getting into your whole story, oh, that's what's going on. And there's a moment of freedom. That's the miracle of mindfulness. Oh, just got lost in my story. It's okay. Mindfulness also has the power to enhance, to increase and develop wholesome states by paying attention to them. When you are really present for the wholesome state, not by grasping on for more, but by just exploring how it feels, you're giving, you're shining a light of awareness on it, and you're amplifying the wholesome state. So I'll just take you through a couple more and, uh, uh, to, to show you how this works. One is the one very direct way towards opening the heart and awakening joy is the state of gratitude, which is something that just starts to naturally happen. And we've seen it. It's so, so beautiful. People coming in on, in interviews, it's so, you know, it's a natural part of the process. Often people, as they start to open, say, I'm so grateful for the practice. Wow. You know what that feels like? I'm so, it just kind of naturally opens up. When you're grateful, you're not contracted. You open your, your heart up. As, as one teacher says, it's like putting out your satellite dish. And instead of grumbling and complaining and saying, oh, well, this is wrong right now and that's wrong and this is a drag and, oh, I just got caught here and what a lousy yogi I am and all of that. When you are grateful, see, when you're like this, you can't even tune into the blessings. They can't fit in because you're too contracted. But when you say, oh, thank you for the practice. Thank you, Dharma. Dharma whatever it is that 
you're grateful for. It's like you open yourself up and then, as this teacher says, the, the blessings of the lineage can be received and open you. When you're feeling a moment of gratitude, don't miss it. Let yourself feel it. As an example of how this works, close your eyes for a moment. Think of some blessing in your life, some one that you feel grateful for, or some thing, circumstance that you feel grateful in your life for, and have an image of that person or that blessing as you bring them to mind or bring to mind a situation. Just give a very simple, silent thank you to that person, to life. Thank you. Let yourself feel it. Just relax into that feeling. You don't have to make anything special happen. Just relax into it. Just feel the landscape of that well-being. Take a breath. We'll do one more. Think of another blessing in your life. Some person, some thing. Have an image in your mind's eye. A simple thank you from the heart. Thank you. Let yourself feel it. Just relax into it. Feel what it's like to feel grateful. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. Pretty cool, huh? So when you're feeling that open as you go through the day, it's not cheating. It's actually skillful to just take a moment and feel that blessing. The Buddha has the, the discourse on blessings that he says to reflect on, on all the blessings that we have in our life. And one of them specifically is to be grateful and content. There's a number of other wholesome states. I'll just mention maybe uh, mention a, a couple more. One is um, reflecting on sila, on our wholesome intention to stay connected with our higher values. You know when. When you do something, you have a choice. You can go either way. You know, either you know, click the send button on the on the email, or not, or whatever it is here in the in the retreat atmosphere. When you choose to act with integrity, that's why we keep the precepts. It's such a support for well-being. Let yourself feel the wholesomeness of that. Here's the Buddha. For one who leads a virtuous life, it is a natural law that remorse will not arise. For one free of remorse, it is a natural law that gladness will arise. For one who is glad at heart, it is a natural law that joy will arise. Goes on beyond joy to all the states of well-being, contentment, equanimity, all the way to freedom. Leading a virtuous life is a, a gift of happiness that you give to yourself. And of course, you know, we blow it a lot, not to beat yourself up and think, oh, there's no hope for me. Each time you forget can be a source of clarity and seeing, oh, that doesn't work. That doesn't lead to happiness. How can I do it in a way that really supports my well-being? So keeping the precepts here is uh, a real uh, container for well-being and happiness. Of course, we've done loving kindness for ourselves, loving kindness towards others. 
when you happen to be feeling it, really connect with it and let your heart rest in it. The difference between loving kindness and attachment, you know, the near enemy of, of love is attachment, is the difference between heaven and hell. Just to show you the difference, just check this out. Bring to mind someone, a dear friend, who you feel a lot of love for, maybe somebody that used in the, in the meta practice. And just have an image of them here with you. And uh, get in touch with just wishing them well. May you be happy. May you really be happy. And you might see them smiling. May you be really at peace. Notice how that feels inside. Now for a moment... Get in touch with wanting something from them. Wanting them not to disappoint you. Wanting their attention. Wanting their love. Wanting them to do a certain way. And as you reflect on that, notice how it feels inside. in the body, in the mind. Notice if it feels any different contraction maybe, or just see. I won't leave you here. Take a breath. And now, once again, just wish them well. Have an image of them smiling. Have an image of them just delighting and feeling your love and just... May you be happy. May you really be happy. Notice how good that feels, the expansion when you don't have an agenda. Let yourself feel that. Don't miss it. Okay, you can open your eyes. course we've been doing compassion when you're feeling that that quality of the heart being touched rest in it with all the brahma viharas rest in that wholesome feeling not grasp after it not try to turn up the jets not try to make it any more than it is but simply just being present for it using mindfulness to let it register deeply all of the wholesome states are leading up to just the, the, the true wholesome cause of happiness is when you're not doing anything. You're not trying, you're not cultivating, but just is, life is moving through you and you can truly relax into your being. This is, this is the real source of happiness where it's not me cultivating I'm going to be happy if it kills me, you know. But you just stop the effort, you stop the trying, and you simply let life move through you. Where you simply are awareness, just opening up to life. So I think I'll close just with this poem that I love that points to uh, one of the most profound wholesome states. This is uh, another Dana Falls poem, Awareness, Knowing Itself. Settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run towards, just this breath. Awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. 
just this breath, awareness waking up to truth. As you go through practice, don't miss those moments of wholesomeness. Let yourself relax into them. Let awareness just wake up to truth right through you. And we'll take a few moments. As you go out for the walking practice, let yourself enjoy it. Delightful. Don't miss it.